There are some things that are just clearly black and white. Like abusing children is always wrong. Racism is always wrong. Violence and cruelty towards people is always wrong. But there's a lot of things about which there are shades of gray. You have to decide as a pastor, is my job to irritate people or my goal to irritate people or influence them? It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Reverend Adam Hamilton is the founding pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. In today's episode, Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White, he and commentator David Brooks explore the role of faith in public conversation. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other programs presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Reverend Hamilton ministers to nearly 20,000 Methodists in and around Kansas City. His mission is to mitigate the deep divisions he observes in his congregation. Some of those divides, he thinks, are happening everywhere and tearing at our country's social fabric. His plan? To get people to think differently by focusing on influencing, not irritating, and seeing the humanity in others, even those we strongly disagree with. In today's show, he and David Brooks discuss the role faith plays in Hamilton's quest to bring people together. Brooks writes a regular op-ed column for the New York Times and is a commentator on the PBS NewsHour. He's written four books, including The Road to Character. Here's Brooks. Uh, so I'm excited about this. Uh, Aspen Institute, I've, I think I've come 12 of the 13 times or whatever it is. And uh, we rarely uh, delve into the realm of the sacred, with the possible exception of Walter Isaacson on himself. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but so I, I thought um, I would just give, before we get into our conversation, I'd just try to roadmap where we're going to be going. Uh, we'll be doing tongues at about 15 minutes after. <laughs> Um, and for those of you who stick around, the healing of the lame and the sick will be at 9.45 or so. Don't forget about the snake handling, too. Yeah, the snakes, snakes will be a little earlier. Yeah. And then we've got a hard stop at 10 for the rapture. So, uh, um, uh, no, I, uh, it is a pleasure. We're going to talk. I, I'd like to just, since we actually don't do enough faith here, I'm first going to ask Adam a little about faith and about his faith and, and then how it informs uh, his worldview. And then about... The, sub, the actual subject at hand, which is um, the shades of gray and how to actually have a public conversation. Uh, so let me first ask you, it's a, it's a simple but a big question, your faith journey. Have you sure. been Christian all your life? Did you have a moment? Did you have an evolution? Sure. Well, first I want to say uh, thank you all for coming this morning. I, I'm thinking, okay, there's a preacher coming here. We'll have five people sitting here. One of them will be my wife. She's around here somewhere. <laughs> so I really appreciate all of you coming. It's a joy to be here. And uh, what an awesome place and awesome speakers and to be with David Brooks, my, pre my preference would be to be sitting out there and just listen to him this whole time. So I'm sorry you have to listen to me too. But, um, so I was not always a Christian. My, my parents uh, conceived me at a party with, uh, without uh, adequate parental supervision when they were 16 and 17. And uh, my uh, mother was uh, sort of fundamentalist. Really getting into it right away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my mother was a fundamentalist Christian uh, by background, Church of Christ. Um, but she was really nothing at the time her mother had taken her own life a year before. And so my mom was sort of not real fond of God at the moment. And uh, my dad was uh, Roman Catholic, um, but not real actively involved. My grandmother on his side insisted I be baptized Catholic, so that was, uh, that was what happened. And then because my parents couldn't agree on religion and weren't really sure what they thought about God at the time, uh, they didn't really go to church for years. 
started having marital problems, started trying to find a church that was halfway between, and this is important for our topic today, halfway between fundamentalist Christian and, and Roman Catholic, and they found the Methodist church. And uh, Methodists tend to be halfway between this and that. And so we, uh, we went to a Methodist church for a few years when I was growing up. They got divorced, and um, we dropped out of church. And then I was a freshman in high school, and by that time I, I believed I was an atheist. Um, I was a pretty smart kid and uh, thought I was smarter than I really was. And I uh, thought only weak people needed God, and God was a crutch, and all those kind of things people say. And uh, one night, a buddy of mine spent the night, and we stayed up smoking pot all night. And the next morning, uh, my mom had gone to work, and uh, a man came knocking on our door who spoke with what looked like a microphone pressed to his throat, an electrolarynx. His vocal cords had been removed, and he was going door-to-door inviting people to church. And I thought, well, that's kind of funny. You know, I wouldn't go to church. But my mom came home that day and said, anything happened today? And I said, yeah, a guy came by, invited us to church. She said, do you want to go? And I thought... Sure, why not? And I went, and it was a Pentecostal church. They weren't handling snakes, but they were raising their hands and talking about the rapture and all the things you just mentioned a minute ago. And, uh, and I was pretty freaked out by the whole thing. But there were three really cute girls in the front row of the church. <laughs> I didn't believe in God, but I believed in girls, and I decided to go back. And I kept going back, and this, uh, my wife of 35 years who's sitting in the room uh, was one of those three girls. And... Uh, so anyway, we, uh, I uh, began reading the Bible. I didn't believe in God, but I thought everybody should read the Bible. I mean, that's just a staple of Western civilization. So I began at the beginning. I took out the old Catholic Bible my grandmother had given me when I was a baby, and I began on page one, and I thought if I read five chapters a night after I do my homework, I'll finish the book in a year, in my, my, my freshman year in high school. And uh, so I did, and I, I got about halfway through, and I began thinking, well, maybe there is a God. And I remember going to my pastor, and I said, I'm halfway through this book. I'm in the book of Psalms, and I haven't. <laughs> you talk about Jesus all the time. I haven't found him yet anywhere in this book. You know, where do you find out about him? And he said, oh, you've got to go to the New Testament. Well, where's that? And he showed me. And, and uh, so I kept reading three chapters of the Old Testament tonight, two chapters of the New Testament. I started in the Gospel of Matthew, and I found myself really taken by Jesus. His stories, the way he stood up to the religious hypocrites, the way he cared for the people who were hurting. Uh, I got to the end of the story, and they crucified him, and I thought, what a horrible thing. You know, and, and then it said that he was raised from the dead, and I thought, yeah, right, I know that didn't happen, but uh, this is an interesting story. I read the Gospel of Mark, and it's kind of a short version of the Gospel of Matthew. And then I got to the Gospel of Luke, and it really just got me. Because the Gospel of Luke, Luke really wants to make sure that people know that Jesus cared about the nobodies and the marginalized and the pushdown and the second class and the third class in the first century. And I felt a little bit like that sometimes. And, uh, and I got to the end of the Gospel, And I read of his crucifixion, and he hangs around the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I thought, what kind of man does that to the people who are crucifying him? The Romans and everybody else around the cross. Then I got to his resurrection, and I thought, you know, this story almost has to end this way. Because if it doesn't end this way, then it means evil and hate and cruelty and inhumanity and death have the final word. So I was 14 years old. I got down on my knees next to my bed. And I just said, okay, Jesus, here's the deal. I'm just a kid. I know I'm just 14, but if you can do anything with me, I hope you will. I'm going to give you my life, and I'd like to follow you. And uh, ever since, I'm 52 now, so for the last 38 years, every morning I wake up and say the same prayer. So this morning in the meadows, I got down on my knees next to the bed and said, here I am. I hope you'll use me somehow today and help me to bless and encourage the people who are sitting in this auditorium, and and I want to follow you again today. And that's my story. And uh, eventually I... I got to college, so I will say this. I got to college. I felt called to be a pastor when I was 16. Uh, got married right out of high school, uh, the week after high school graduation, because in my Pentecostal church, the pastor said Jesus was coming back for the rapture at any moment. And uh, 
there was one thing I wanted to experience before Jesus came back, and it went along with getting married. <laughs> so I went to college uh, to study to be a Pentecostal preacher, and I had lots of questions. I always had lots of questions. My pastor would say, don't ask so many questions. Just take it by faith. But I couldn't do that. I was, you know, I, I really loved science. I loved philosophy. I loved, you know, and there were just a lot of things that were perplexing to me. I went to Oral Roberts University to study to be a Pentecostal preacher. And uh, my freshman year, I found I was not cut out to be a fundamentalist, you know, even though I appreciated so much of the Pentecostal tradition, but not a Pentecostal. My two best friends died that year in a terrible accident, and it left me really questioning uh, theodicy or the problem of suffering and how do we make sense of God in a world where bad things happen. And uh, that left me on a quest, really, for about six months. And by the time I got to the end of that six months, I felt like I had, you know, some idea. I mean, there are people who say everything happens for a reason, and and uh, I don't think that's true, unless you mean cause and effect. But the idea that God wants everything to happen that happens makes absolutely no sense to me in a world where people do horrible things to each other. And, uh, and I got to the end of that year, and I realized what happened was my friends were killed in an accident. And accidents happen in the world. And that didn't eliminate the idea of God. What it did is it told me that the one hope I had for my friends was God, and that God has the capacity, like Dr. Martin Luther King said, God forces or wrings good from evil, and he is ultimately the source of hope for me. And so uh, I found out I wasn't fit to be a Pentecostal preacher, decided where did I fit, and I thought, well, I was baptized Catholic, maybe I should be a Catholic priest, but I made a terrible career decision getting married the week after high school graduation. <laughs> so then I started looking at Methodism and studying John Wesley and, and began to find this, this conjunctive faith, which is really about seeing gray in a world of black and white that says, you can use your intellect and you don't check your brain at the door of the church when you come to church. And at the same time, you can have a heart that you know, is moved by God. And, and you should focus on both a spiritual life, but also on living out faith and justice in the world. And that these things go hand in hand. And so that's, that's my story. Okay. Beautiful. You get on your knees every morning. Uh, are there some moments where the presence of God is not felt or where you have doubts? Well, doubt is, doubt is just a part of faith. I mean, it's, it's not, and I tell people, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It's the, it says that you're asking questions, and that's a good thing. So, and I think Martin Luther once said, you know, only, only, uh, only evil people and certain madmen never have any doubts. Uh, the rest of us all have doubts. And, uh, and yeah, there are times I don't feel the presence of God. And part of what I've come to realize is there are times I don't feel in love with my wife either. Um, but I still love her, even though I don't feel in love with her. And my faith isn't so much built on feelings, but there are other times, like even last night, I was walking through the woods here, and I saw the moon coming up over the mountain. I don't know if you saw it, that sliver of, of the moon. And I just stood there, and I thought, thank you, God, for making such a beautiful world and allowing us to live in it. And I just, in the silence, just felt God's presence there. Some people just call that feeling the presence of nature, but I look at the God who created all these things, and I think they're a reflection of him, and I feel, you know. So yes, I, there are times I don't feel God's presence, and uh, God is conspicuous by his absence, we sometimes say. And there are many times where I have felt God's presence. Now let's uh, talk about how your faith informs the way you see the world. Yeah. Um, there are certain categories that come with faith. And they really come through the biblical metaphysic. And I, there's categories of grace. And there's categories of forgiveness. The one I want to start with, because it has such an importance for, as we deal with the public world, is the concept of sin. How do you define sin? How do you see it in the world? Sure. Well, sin's gotten a pretty bad rap. You know, anymore when we think of sin, we think of fundamentals, or not even fundamentals, but just preachers who, 
you know, who are standing with their sandwich boards on the street corner talking about sin, or we, we feel the heavy weight of that in, in a church experience or a religious experience, it's all about guilt. And I don't think that's a good way of thinking about sin. The Greek word in the New Testament for sin is hamartia. And it's a word that means to stray from the path or to miss the mark. And if you think about that, what it implies is that there is a mark. Like there's a target that we should be living at as, you know, for as human beings. That we should be kind and gracious and loving and a whole host of other things. We, Jesus said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbors you love yourself. You know, doing to others as you'd have them do to you. So there's a, there's a mark or a target of what it means to be human. And, and the word sin in, in Greek means that you've strayed from that a little bit. And which of us haven't, you know, haven't done that? I mean, we all have you know, mistreated people and been cruel to them. We've all, you know, we've all done things that were selfish and narcissistic. And so every one of us strays from the path somewhere along the way, which is why I think we need to reclaim that word a bit. And, uh, and when we stray from the path, then the question is, well, what do you do about that? Well, hopefully one day you wake up and go, man, I really missed it. And, and guilt, you know, when, when preachers are laying on a heavy coat of guilt, that's not good. But when but when you feel a little bit of guilt, that's actually a good thing because it means you realize, I, I mistreated that person. I need to go back and do something about it. And, and so there's another word called metanoia, the Greek word metanoia in the New Testament, which means to repent. But to repent means actually to think differently afterwards. That's literally what metanoia means. It means I realize I did something I shouldn't have done, and, and I don't want to do that again. And so when you think differently about it, then it moves to your heart and you, start, you feel a little bad about it. And then you finally go and say to the person, I'm really sorry for what I said. I, I, I wish I hadn't done that. And you make up for it. And that's repentance. And so those two concepts really are important in daily life. Whether you're a religious person or not, you can't stay married more than a year, maybe more than a month, until you learn the concept of sin and repentance. Because you're going to have blown it you know, multiple times that first month, maybe the first day. And you're going to have to go back and say, I'm really sorry and I shouldn't have done that. And then, you know, Christians believe that that also relates to God. And that, you know, because God has this will for what our lives should be like, then when we stray from that path, part of it is also being reconciled with God or being right with God. And so part of what I do every night when I go to bed is I get on my knees again, or sometimes I just lay in bed, and I say, God, I'm sorry I didn't live up to that prayer I prayed this morning today. Uh, I, wished I'd, I wished I'd been more the person you wanted me to be. And forgive me and wash me clean. And there's something beautiful about that too, feeling new again. You are listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White, featuring Reverend Adam Hamilton and David Brooks. Find Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Google Play, and Sirius XM's Insight Channel. That's Channel 121. Our episodes cover need-to-know issues and introduce you to new ideas and different perspectives. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts. Now back to the show. Here's David Brooks. Now, when you read a, a secular uh, newspaper like the New York Times, uh, are there which I do read. Good, good. Do you pay for it? Do you subscribe? I actually do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I get it every morning on my iPad. <laughs> See, redemption. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, do you um, do you say? Well, I actually see the world differently than what I'm reading about here in a, in a secular, the secular language we use? You know, I, I don't really think of it that way. I think, though, that when I read the newspaper or I watch the news, I see the gospel, you know, lived out on the pages of the newspaper. 
And I think you can look at, at many of the stories and you either see, here's a picture of what human beings are meant to, you know, so the good news stories. I'm like, that's a picture of what it means to be human, of what God made us for, compassionate, merciful, just. And then when you read other stories, you go, that's a picture of what's wrong with us. You know, and, and some have said the you know, original sin is a, is a doctrine that, that you know, some would argue with. But the idea that human beings stray from the path, I think, is, an, is something you just can't argue against that. Because you just open up the New York Times and you see it over and over and over again on the pages of the New York Times. But I see it in my own life every day as well. So. And there, there's one parable in the Gospels that I wanted to ask you about because it, it, it causes one to rethink one's views of politics. Uh, and the public life. And that's the parable of the prodigal son. And just so we're all on the same page, I'm going to do a 30-second summary of it, which is that a guy has two sons. The one son is the model son. The elder son is a model son. Works at the farm, does everything he's expected to, follows all the rules. The younger son is the prodigal son. He says, give me my inheritance now. He goes away. He blows it all on wine, women, and song. He comes back. And as he's coming back, the father goes out to meet him with joy and gives him the place of honor at a feast. And the older son says, hey, what about me? I've played by the rules. This guy gets all the, all the, all the glory. And it's a, it's a parable to me, but I, I'm asking about your view, between justice and mercy. One guy's following the rules, and the people who follow the rules should get the rewards. And the, it's a story of mercy because the father is saying to the son, you broke the rules, but I'm going to forgive you and grant you mercy and even glory. Yeah. And so that's, that's something we face in public life all the time justice versus mercy. Yeah. So part of what I'm grateful for is that we don't get justice, we get mercy. Because ultimately we want justice when it comes to how people treat us. But if we were to really analyze our lives carefully, what we realize is we've mistreated people so many times, what we really want from God is mercy for us. And of course we become instruments of justice in the world and we're to do justice and to love kindness, the prophet Micah said, and walk humbly with God. But what I love about Jesus is he's constantly talking about mercy. And uh, the scripture says that mercy triumphs over even justice. That, you know, so this morning I was reading another parable where uh, Jesus talked about a man who hired people to work in his vineyard. And you know, the folks who worked all day long thought they were going to get more money than the folks he hired at the last hour. And he gave them all the same, same fee. And they said, it's not fair. And, and Jesus was painting a picture again of God isn't fair and that God is just. He wants justice for everyone. But at the same time, God is rich in mercy. And the reason why he told the parable of the prodigal son, the part of it that I love the most is it, the context is Luke 15, again, that gospel about the nobodies and the, and the marginalized, is, uh, is Jesus is teaching to all of these sinners and tax collectors, like non-religious people. And as he's teaching them, the Pharisees, the religious leaders come up and say, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he, why does he spend his time with people like that, those people? And Jesus, in order to answer them, gives them this, uh, you know, tells them this parable. And he, I love how he says, you know, the prodigal son realizes he comes he hits rock bottom and he realizes I need something I, I got to go back and so he's you know probably has all these ways he's going to ask for forgiveness from his father and he realizes he's never going to be reinstated but at least he can be a servant in his father's house and the father Jesus says when the father sees his son while his son was still a far way off he ran to meet his son and he wrapped his arms around him and said my son who was dead is alive again and Jesus said to this crowd of religious people and all of the sinners and tax collectors that's what God is like he is merciful and he takes us back, even though we've blown it again and again and again. One of the profound questions I've heard about that parable is when we read it, we all associate with one of the characters. Mm-hmm. We think, oh, I'm the father, I'm the elder son, I'm the younger son. But we're all wrong about which character we actually are. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. 
Now, I, w I want to ask you now, turning to seeing gray in a, in a world that's polarized, polarized religiously and polarized politically, and I want to start maybe with Wesley, now it occurs to me. Uh, there's a, a very fine writer named Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic Franciscan who lives out in Albuquerque, and he has a concept called the, on, you want to be on the edge of inside. That you, you want to be inside a community, but you don't want to be at the core where you only see the community. You want to be on the fence or just inside so you can see out and meet people who are outside and you can bring creative ideas to inside. And he says Jesus was on the edge of inside of Judaism. And it's, it's a creative place to be. And one of the nice things about it, it, it emphasizes the nature of duality. That you see one side, you see another point of view. And you, when you, in your reference to Wesley, you sort of said he was that kind of thinker. Right. So Wesley had the capacity to be able to question and analyze the religious forces of his day to see what, was, uh, what he didn't feel like was right. And so he was in some ways a, you know, he started off as an Anglican priest in the Church of England. He became a sort of revivalist or an even leader of the evangelical revival of the 18th century. But he had the capacity to see both the need for a gospel that was deeply spiritual and personal, and at the same time a gospel that was concerned about what was happening in the world. And so one of my favorite stories of him is he was in his, I think he was in his late 70s or early 80s, and uh, there was a, a you know, period in which there was great poverty in the city of London and a horrible winter. And he goes, now this is the Billy Graham, I mean, if you think of high-profile religious figures uh, of the time, he was the Billy Graham of the, uh, of the 18th century. And by that time, very well known. And uh, he's going door to door asking people for help for uh, the food offerings they were giving to the poor. And I love this picture of him. You know, here's the most famous of, of preachers of the 18th century. And he's still going door to door trying to make sure that there's enough for people who have nothing to eat. And so that capacity to be able to see you know, both sides of, a, uh, of the coin, you know, the love God and love your neighbor sort of picture, um, I think is really important, conjunctive. And he does that in a lot of different ways. The head and the heart were also two of those things. So, you know, he believed again that you brought your, God gave you a brain for a reason. And God isn't offended that you ask questions and that you have doubts. And at the same time, he believed that the heart was really important. And so you can find religions where it's all about the head. You can find religions where it's all about the heart. But Wesley thought those two things went hand in hand. Now you're trying to lead the <clears throat> congregation through a public conversations, I guess, inspired by this, what you've just described. Uh, and I thought maybe we would start by talking, as we talk about what you're doing, maybe if you, you've brought some videos, and we're just going to ask you to pick one. Yeah, just sure. Just to give people an on. So uh, before I do that, I, I wanted to mention one thing that I think is interesting about Jesus, and I didn't catch this insight until a friend shared it with me during the last presidential season. But um, among his disciples, he chose Matthew the tax collector. He was a collaborator with the Romans. And he chose, uh, he chose Simon the Zealot, who was absolutely opposed to the Romans occupying the Holy Land, and they were willing to kill Romans and terrorize them to get them out. Which, in essence, means he took a hardcore Democrat and a hardcore Republican, <laughs> and he asked them both to be his disciples, which I thought was really fascinating. And I, and I would have loved to have heard the, conver the political conversations they were having back and forth, and how strongly they disagreed with each other, and, and, and Jesus somehow managed to pull them together and I think there was something valuable about both sides, and that's, that's really how I look at politics as well. Is it to say that the Democrats have all the answers and the Republicans are wrong about everything seems to me to be the absolute essence of hubris. Or that the Republicans have all the answers and they have it all figured out and the Democrats have everything wrong seems the essence of hubris. And so somewhere there's, and, and yet what's happened today is we've become so polarized we can't really listen to each other. Likewise, you know, the terms liberal and conservative. If you're a conservative, liberal is about the worst thing you can call somebody. 
If you're a uh, liberal, calling them a conservative is about the worst thing you can call them. So people ask me this question, and I'm going to get to your question, but people ask me this question all the time. Are you liberal or conservative? I can't figure you out. And my answer is always the same. Yes, of course. <laughs> and they're like, no, which one are you? You're, you have to be one or the other. I said, why do I have to be one or the other? To be liberal means to be uh, open to reform, new ideas, generous. Right? Who doesn't want to be that? Like, and, and to be conservative means that you recognize there are some things that are so important you conserve them. I mean, you hold on to them. You don't just cast them aside because they're no longer popular or in style. And so if you're conservative without being liberal, you're stuck. If you're liberal without being conservative, uh, you are, uh, you're you know, out there drifting. But somehow to be both of those things, to recognize, and, and every person in this room is liberal compared to somebody. But every person in this room is also conservative compared to somebody else. Right? There's some, and those two things, really, if we can hold them in tension with each other, we find, you know, I think, the greatest opportunity for truth. Now I've forgotten your question. <laughs> it was about the parable of the talents. <laughs> uh, now, I was asking, I, just, you're, you're now leading your ministry through this process of public deliberation, and right. I wanted you to describe Oh, yeah, and, and share one of the videos. So, so we at Resurrection, at Church of the Resurrection, we're a United Methodist Church. We uh, try to bring both the evangelical and social gospel together regularly. So some of my sermons will be about how to have a deeper prayer life or, you know, the, you know, the, the interior spiritual life or, or, you know, taking people through, this, through a study of one of the gospel characters or a biblical character. I just got back from Egypt where I uh, took a film crew and I retraced the story of Moses in the Exodus and came back and said, what does this story mean for us? And showed film clips of all these different places in Egypt. And, but at the same time, we're going to clearly talk about how does our faith lead us to action in the world? Um, and my, not just mine, but... I think the contention of Scripture is that God works through human beings. God doesn't send angels. He doesn't work you know, in, in, in some extraordinary way. Most of the time, God works through human beings. And so when God sees that somewhere between twenty and 30,000 children die every day of starva starvation and malnutrition-related diseases, I believe God's heart breaks over that. But the problem isn't there's not enough food on the planet. It's distribution, and that's us. You know, we're meant to be motivated to care about those things or injustice in the inner city or, or racial disparity or whatever those things are. So we regularly uh, talk about the issues that are dividing us as a country. We talk about the issues that make us uncomfortable in church. And, and, uh, and so I'll give you one example. This is from several years back, but this was a sermon series we did where I thought, I want to teach our people how to do ethics by watching the news, since this is your, your uh, area of of, uh, of, you know, you've dedicated your life to is working in this media. And I thought, I'd like for them to look at the news every night and say, I wonder how the gospel calls me to act in response to this. So I'll show you, this is the KNBC uh, promo. This is a promo we showed on Easter Sunday for a sermon series we were doing after that. This was several years ago. And the guy you're going to see is kind of the Walter Cronkite of Kansas City. Uh, Larry Moore has been doing the news since I was a kid. And here was the promo. Take a look. Hello, I'm Larry Moore of KNBC 9 News. You may be accustomed to seeing my colleagues and me at 5, 6, and 10 in your living room, but in just a couple of weeks, we'll be joining you every weekend at church, too. For the first time ever, KMBC and Church of the Resurrection are teaming up for an extraordinary new sermon series, The Gospel and the Stories Making News Today. Each week, we'll examine the stories in the news and choose one to cover for Church of the Resurrection. We'll bring you special reports, interviews, and expert analysis from our newsroom. Then, Reverend Adam Hamilton explains the story from a Christian perspective. What does the story mean for people of faith? How does Christianity help us make sense of the world we live in? And how can we find real hope, even in the nightly news? At KMBC 9 News, we're excited to work in partnership with one of Kansas City's most dynamic churches. We hope you'll join us on the air and at church beginning this May.
So every Sunday, uh, we would begin with a news story, and their newscasters would retell the story for us at the, at the studio. And some of them were lighthearted stories. One was a woman who was 96 years old and who was still working as an editor in the local newspaper. And so that had us talking about Abraham and Sarah and all the people who were you know, older in the scriptures and how sometimes your best years are your last years as God is using you to make a difference. Then, then, uh, but the first week in the series was the Kansas City, Missouri public school system was imploding that week. And uh, our church is located, at least our main campus, in the southern suburbs of Kansas City. We have one of the best school systems in America. But in the heart of the city, uh, the white flight of the 1960s and 1970s had left people living in the inner city who couldn't afford to go anywhere else. And at least in the Kansas City area, schools are funded by property taxes. And so the property values continued to plummet, and the taxes plummeted, and the schools, the quality of the schools plummeted, and then people didn't want to work in the schools, in the inner city schools. And, uh, and so this particular week, the superintendent of schools had been fired. He was the 17th superintendent of schools in 26 years. The, um, the, a federal judge reinstated that superintendent, and then he resigned. It, uh, Kansas City, Missouri public schools with, at the time, 32,000 students, now less than 16,000. 32,000 students uh, became the first major school system in America to have its accreditation revoked by the State Board of Education. And they were in crisis, and that was the story, the lead story every day that week. So we showed it at the beginning of the sermon, and then you could feel the discomfort in the room because our folks lived in the suburbs with the best school system. And I could, I could just imagine, I could hear them thinking, why are you talking about this? This has nothing to do with us. Thank God this is not our problem because we don't live there. And so the sermon began, and I just said, I know this is uncomfortable for us. And you might wonder, what does this have to do with church and God? So I guess I'd ask this question. Do you think God cares about those 32,000 children or the teachers who work there or the implosion of that school district? And if God doesn't care about that, then what does God care about? And so let me just tell you a story about how the, how the Kansas City, Missouri school system started. And it started with a Methodist preacher in the basement of the Westport Methodist Church who wanted to make sure every kid got a free education in Kansas City. And on the Kansas side of the state line, a missionary who came to start a school for the Shawnee Indians because they believed that education was a way of helping people have a future with hope and living out the gospel in their lives. So we have to care about this. And, then the, you know, the, and so we took this thing that was uncomfortable for people, and then, and then we turned to the scriptures and said, what does the scriptures teach us about God's care for children? And so we looked at the passages where Jesus is with children and what he does with children. And then finally we said, so we can't solve this problem in a 30-minute sermon, but maybe we can do something. And, and before we were done, we passed out the offering plates, and I said, put your money away. You already gave. I want you to take something out. And we had a postcard with the name of every uh, 6,000 postcards in the offering plates. We had the name of every teacher, janitor, cafeteria worker, administrator in the school district, the school they worked at, and their job and the address. And I said, I want you to take one of those out, and we're going to spend the next month praying for these folks. I want you to send them a note. And I want you to offer, however you could help, I'd like for you to, to offer to help. And some of you in your jobs might be able to offer scholarships to these kids. Some of you might say, what school supplies are needed? Do you need volunteer tutors? What do you need? And that began a partnership with our schools in Kansas City. And we have six urban schools that we partner with. Uh, these are all the lowest income communities in Kansas City. And uh, each year, half of our Christmas Eve offering goes towards this. Uh, we give between a half a million and a million dollars a year to projects related to these schools. We have about 1,500 volunteers who work in the schools every year. We have tutors who t uh, tutor. We have a bookmobile with 40,000 books we gave it last year. But all of this was a way of starting with something that seemed like it had nothing to do with us. And all of a sudden, you know, 10 years later, our, our people go, we are respond. We are our brother and sister's keeper. But that came out of our faith and out of our willingness to talk about those kind of difficult issues.
It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Today's conversation features David Brooks and Adam Hamilton. Brooks writes op-ed columns for the New York Times. He's written four books, including The Road to Character. Hamilton founded the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection near Kansas City. It's the largest United Methodist Church in the U.S. with an average weekend attendance of 8,600 people. Here's more of their conversation, which took place at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. David Brooks. How deep do you get into the sort of politics, frankly, that I deal with? In the sort of politics I deal with, you start with an assumption and then you make a decision. You're either for the Senate health care bill or you're against it. You're either for Clinton you're for, or you're for, for Trump. You're either for closing the border or you're for keeping it open or whatever. And usually those decision points are not, it's not just pure good like service to children. It's usually a competition between goods. Yes. And you, if you're for restricting immigration, you want national cohesion, which is a good. Uh, if you're for opening it, you want a more dynamic country with a more diverse country, which is also a good. Right. And so how, how close do you lead your flock to the actual decision? Right. So what we don't do is I don't stand from the pulpit and say, this is what you must believe about this issue. Because what I find is, you know, if I, if I don't come in with that assumption that that's the right thing, and you don't adequately present my point of view, and you just say this is God's view, and I know information that you may not have covered or talked about, or maybe you don't even know, I just feel taken advantage of and hurt by the fact that you said in the name of God, this is what I must believe or do. Instead, what I do is I try to invite people to think, and I want to inform their decisions. And so what we try to do, and this is what uh, my very first book, six, 17 years ago, was called Confronting the Controversies. We don't have it here, but I took the most controversial issues, and I presented in the sermon. I'd spend 10 minutes presenting as well as I could one side of that issue. And, uh, and by the time I was done, anybody who held that position would say, that's the best 10-minute summary I've ever heard of that position, of my position. He gets me. He knows. And they think I'm for them. And then I'm going to take the next 10 minutes, and I'm going to do the exact same thing with the opposite view from a biblical perspective, and I'm going to make the case on both sides. And by the time I get to the end of 20 minutes, they're like, uh, what, what does he believe exactly? And then I'm going to spend the last 10 minutes with great humility to say, okay, I've reflected upon this, and you both know on both sides that I, I probably understand fairly well your argument. So here's where I come out today, and I could be wrong, so I'm giving you permission to disagree with me. But here's where I come out, and here's why I come out in this place. And so presenting both sides of an argument and then being able to, with humility, offer this is what I think based upon these two sides honors both sides. And I always say, and those of you who hold this particular view, I'm so grateful for the motivation behind why you hold that view. I think it's a good and beautiful motivation. And I don't think you're entirely wrong. I think you've got some important points to make. But this is, this is how I see it. And so I found doing that allows people the possibility of changing their mind. When you come in and you just make a case for one side of an, an issue, in my job, in, in, the, in the pulpit, and our congregation is divided 60-40 Republican and Democrat. We're in a very red state, and we're pretty, pretty almost evenly divided. And we often have both candidates from either party who are running against each other as members of our church. So we've had you know, those running for Congress and others, both members on both sides. So what I found is, and this is, the, this is an important statement I try to teach pastors, when it comes to prophetic preaching, and, and really challenging the things that are happening in our world today. There are some things that are just clearly black and white. Like abusing children is always wrong. Ra- racism is always wrong. Violence and cruelty towards people is always wrong. But there's a lot of things about which there are shades of gray. And uh, what I found is when you're dealing with these issues that are complex, um, you have to decide as a pastor, is my job to irritate people or my goal to irritate people or influence them? Now, prophets can come in and they can irritate people and leave. 
But pastors who are preaching prophetically have to figure out how I'm not just poking you in the eye, but instead I'm actually trying to influence you. And that takes, it doesn't take any skill to irritate people. It just doesn't. But it, it's a living, it's a living. Exactly. <laughs> well, you're better at it than most. It does take some skill. But, but, um, but if you want to influence people, then you've got to figure out what could I do or say about this particular thing that would actually lead people to go, hmm, I never thought of it that way before. Maybe I need to spend some more time thinking about it. And so sometimes I'll preach on something, and then we'll have a seminar like uh, health care. So with the Affordable Care Act under President Obama, you know, I, I preached into this, and you go to the, the parable of the Good Samaritan who stops and gives health care, you know, provides care for somebody who was, you know, who was uh, left by the side of the road. And so, you know, so I preach into this, and I kind of take that, that approach, but then we, we sponsor a forum where I bring in a head of a health, you know, health insurance company and, and a head of a hospital and a head of a social service clinic. And, and we, we have 1,500 people show up to here to dig deeper into that, or the Palestinians and Israelis. And there's just home, so many things in which I can cover so much in a sermon, and then I really need more time for people to be able to ponder and think. And, the, and the, you know, doing that, we inevitably have people leave every year who are mad because you know, I, I didn't take their side of, this, you know, of the position. But we have a lot more people who say, I so value being challenged to think. I so value the fact that the pastor does have a position, but he, he invites me to think and doesn't force me to accept his position. And I love the fact that we take those, wherever we come out on those things, we're going to now do something about it in the world. Are there some issues that are not matters of thought, but are, are matters of obedience? And I'm thinking of the life issue or the definition of marriage issue for you. Um, I think there's a lot of things that are about obedience for me in terms of saying yes to God and striving to do uh, justice and love mercy and love my neighbor. When it comes to the definition of marriage, uh, that to me is not an obedience issue. Um, and, and here's why. And one of the books I have out here is a book called Making Sense of the Bible. And I find that most people, including most progressives or liberals who maybe haven't done a lot of Bible study, we've had a, our definition of the Bible shaped by conservative, more fundamentalist views of Scripture that tell us this is the word of God, every line in it was dictated by God, which is not what the Bible is and not how it ever functioned. So human beings are writing the scriptures. They tell us their names. I, Paul, write this letter to you, the Romans. And somewhere God is a part of that, I believe. Somewhere God is a part of that process. But it's not that, you know, it's not that we look at every line and say, well, this is exactly God's timeless will for us. If, if, if we did that, there are over 275 verses in scripture that affirm slavery. Now, none of us thinks that, you know, and, and tells us it's, it's okay if you beat your slaves with rods as long as you don't kill them. If they die within two days, you're punished. But if not, there's no punishment for the slave as your property. Well, who's going to look at that verse and say, yes, we ought to do that? We have to question when we look at the Bible. So it's, it's the most sacred book. Like, I, I keep it in my back pocket every morning. I put it in here. It's shaped just like my butt right there. <laughs> and I read it every day. I began my day after I prayed on my knees. I began my day reading scripture and listening. And at the same time, I recognize that the Bible was formed and shaped by people who were living in particular cultural circumstances and times, and they were understanding God in the best way that they could. And so when you begin to understand this, then you can begin to ask questions in the light of the culture and the times in which the Bible is formed, and you begin to look for what are the timeless principles in Scripture. And some people say, well, that's just picking and choosing. And I would say, no, it's, it's not picking and choosing. It's rightly interpreting Scripture. And, and there is some debate about that. So there are faithful Christians who say, you know, the definition of marriage is between a man and a woman. And then, you know, I'm going to say, well, what was God's intention for marriage to begin with? You go back to the archetypal story of Adam, you know, Adam and Eve, and it was, God said it wasn't good for the man to be alone. I will make for him a helper as his companion. 
and a recognition there was a need for companionship. And then we looked to see, well, what are, you know, what are the, you know, what, what do we know about human beings and about sexuality? And do we know some things maybe we didn't know back then? And, and so I think that there are, there's an obedience factor, but the obedience factor is figuring out which of these commandments are the, are the ultimate commandments that shape everything else. And, and so one person uh, shared with me this idea, it's in Making Sense of the Bible, where, where you look at the Bible and you read it with the help of a colander. Right, the colander, you, you put your vegetables in there and you wash them and, the, and some stuff washes out. When you're reading scripture, you say, well, what's the colander you know, that I'm using to read scripture? And Jesus said this, the entire law and prophets could be summarized by these two commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbors, you love yourself. And then he said the same thing about the, uh, the golden rule, love your neighbors, you love yourself, or uh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So we look at that and we say, if something doesn't line up with that, like beating your slave with rods doesn't seem to line up with loving your neighbor, then we say maybe that really has more to do with the culture of the times and less to do with God's timeless and eternal will for us. And, uh, and when we read it that way, then we start finding it's, we can wrestle with the difficult passages of the Bible, the violence we find in, in certain places in the Hebrew Bible, or slavery, or how women were subordinated. And we can say that doesn't line up with the bigger biblical principle. Now what I tell people is when you start finding passages you don't like personally because they're hard for you, if something's a hard passage for me personally, I'm probably going to say that may be really something I need to pay attention to. But, uh, but if I find something that is, is harming you, then there's role, a role for me to say maybe this really doesn't express God's timeless will in this passage. It expresses how people thought in that particular. It tells us more about the people of that time than, than God's will today. Today's speakers are Adam Hamilton and David Brooks. Their conversation, Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White, was held on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. If you like today's show, check out one of our early episodes, Faith in the Public Square. It features Senator Chris Coons and Sojourners President Jim Wallace. Sojourners is a faith-based organization that works to put faith into action for social justice. Find a link to this recommended companion episode in our show notes or by searching the Aspen Ideas To Go archive on Apple Podcasts. Now back to our featured conversation. Here's David Brooks. Really a problem I would have if I were in your job over the last 18 months. And so I'm a pastor to a church, imagine this, uh, with 60% Republican, 40% Democrat. And I look at the rise of Donald Trump, and it would have occurred to me that the virtues Donald Trump has do not overlap with the Christian virtues as I understand them. And I would have felt compelled to say something about that. Yeah, I, I did uh, a number of times. And sometimes in jest, I mean, I, honestly, like probably most of you, for the first six months, I'm like, there's no way he's going to be president. And so, you know, when, the, when, when he talked about communion, taking that little cracker, the little cracker and drinking the little cup of juice and, and uh, or, you know, I don't, I don't really ask God for forgiveness. You know, I just don't really feel like that's, I just need to try to be a better person. And I'm, I mean, these were all just such great grist for, you know, sermons. Um, <laughs> but so I'll give an example that ties back to you. Um, after the inauguration, Actually, this was, at, yeah, this was right after the inauguration. And I had women in my congregation who were Republicans who were really deeply upset about this. Uh, I had uh, you know, clearly Democrats who were you know, just mind-boggled by the whole thing. And, and then I, had, I have conservative, uh, fiscal conservatives who are social progressives in my church who said, I'm so grateful that we have somebody who's going to get us on the right course when it comes to the economy or fiscally. Right? So you have all of this. I had people, you know, I had a guy wearing his you know, Make America Great Again hat to church. Like, dude, seriously? 
Can you just leave that at home? But um, so on the Sunday after the inauguration, uh, I went to one of my favorite books, uh, The Road to Character, and um, and I said um, I said I'd like to draw something from uh, from David Brooks that uh, that I think could be helpful. And you start off by talking about the two creation stories. So Genesis 1 is one creation story. Genesis 2 and 3 is another creation story. Uh, they come from two different traditions, and they're brought together in the Bible, and they're both really important, beautiful stories. Genesis 1 is this magnificent story where God creates the man and the woman by speaking. He creates them at the same time. There's equality. He creates them in God's image. And so they're meant to glorify God, and God looks at them and says they are good. Then you get to Genesis 2, and God makes the man from the dust of the earth. And uh, he creates the woman after the man from the man's side, and creates the new and improved model of the human being, the woman. And, <clears throat> and, um, and they are told not to eat from the forbidden fruit, and they eat from the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. This is an all an archetypal story. I don't take it as a story telling us about two people who lived thousands of years ago. It's about us. Right? We, are, we are Adam and Eve. And every day we decide, are we going to eat from the forbidden fruit and paradise is lost? We mess things up or are we, going to, are we going to live like the first Adam? And you do such a beautiful job with this, talking about these two Adams. And so I started off with that. And I said, you know, some of you are hurting today and you're upset and some of you are, you know, happy. And I, I just got to tell you, you know, when I look at Donald Trump, I see, uh, I'm reminded of these two Adams. And uh, one is, you know, somewhere within Donald Trump, like all of you, is the Adam who was created in the image of God and who God looks at and says, this is good. And somewhere in every one of us is the second Adam, who is narcissistic, who only really wants what's good for him, who's going to eat the forbidden fruit to hell with everybody else. And that's not just Donald Trump. That's every one of us. And so the question I have is, which Adam will prevail in Donald Trump's life? Will he become more like the first Adam or the second Adam? And, uh, and, and what I'm going to be doing is praying every day. I actually don't remember to pray every day for him, but I, many times I do. <laughs> I, I do pray for him. And, uh, and I am going to pray that the office will ennoble him, and he will be more like the first Adam than the second Adam. And that also is about redemption, and it's about hope. And I, I'll just say this one last thing. You and I mentioned this. Uh, one of the concerns I have, or maybe we didn't talk about it at my roundtable yesterday, one of the concerns I have about uh, our reaction to Donald Trump is um, every news story in my newsfeed is about Donald Trump. Now, I listen to multiple news sources, so I've got uh, I have Breitbart, um, I have Fox News, CNN, the New York Times, and I'm trying to hear where different people are coming from. And, but, but all of the center and center-left news feeds are always picking up every little tweet, every little thing that he does, and it's, it's horrible. And part of, the, part of the fear I have is that when everything the person does is horrible, we're going to talk about every little thing they do, how do I know when they do something really horrible? Like, how do we differentiate between the stuff that's really bad and the ordinary stuff they did? Like, like you know, Obama did stuff, right? But we didn't talk every day about the you know, time he went out and had a cigarette or how he did this or that or whatever else. And I don't care for Donald Trump, although I love him, not emotionally, but I'm called to love him. And so, and, and the other thing I think is we fail to lift up times when he does something good because we're afraid we're going to get, you know, if you're, if you're not a Donald Trump fan and you lift up something he does that's right, then it sounds like you're excusing everything else. 
But somewhere along the way, you've got to be able to say, hey, I, th I think you got it right here. I, you don't have to, but I feel like I feel the need to be able to say, I, I can't just pile onto this person all the time. I've got to see if there's something they did good. And then you've got to ask, how do you, and if all you do is, is you know, speak negatively about a person, how do you ever influence them? I think about Dale Carnegie. How do you win friends and influence people? Sometimes you look for the good in them, and you praise that, even as you clearly speak to the things that are wrong. And so those are, that's my issue. I'm not expecting you to agree with me, but anyway. Questions? My question is, in trying to find the duality and the gray, how do you approach um, gun control or the lack of living in middle America when you preach forgiveness and mercy with the killing? Yep. So, um, I'd love for you, if you're interested in checking out any of my sermons, they're all online at cor.org, uh, core.org, churchofresurrection.org. And uh, last year I did a sermon series on the issues that divide. And it was at the, in January and February, just before, you know, as the elections were really heating up. And I asked our congregation, what are the critical issues that you think we're most divided about? And one of those, in fact, the one that I was surprised, the one that they were most, uh, felt like would be most divisive was gun control. And so that was the last sermon in the series. I always save the most controversial one for the end. And so we did gun control that weekend. And um, so if you spend time with people who stand on the other side but who are reasonable, if you're somebody who's an advocate of more gun control, you, stand, you sit with people who are on the other side, you realize that there are some arguments that they make that have some legitimacy to them. Now, not you wouldn't accept them, but you understand uh, how this works. I personally am somebody who, who wishes we had lots more uh, laws, and we wish, and wish that, we, uh, that we enforce the laws we had. And uh, so anyway, on that weekend, I interviewed, and I interviewed people from both sides. So I interviewed the head of Grandmothers, Grandparents Against Gun Violence, and, uh, and I interviewed the, um, a, man, a member of our congregation who owns a, owns a uh, shooting range. And uh, I went and I actually said, teach me how to shoot a gun. I don't have any guns. I don't believe in having guns. I'd like for you to show me how to do it. So he gave me lessons on how to fire a, I forget what I fired, but I was standing there firing a pistol. And, and, um, but the person I was really interested in interviewing was the, uh, was the family whose uh, father uh, was killed at the Jewish Community Center on Palm Sunday in 2014, who uh, this whole family are members of my church. And his grandson, uh, this family's son, was also killed at the Jewish Community Center by a man from the KKK who had drove up from central Missouri, uh, a straw man purchase of a gun at Walmart, and uh, went to the Jewish community center to kill Jews and killed two Methodists, um, and then went to the Jewish geriatric center and killed a woman walking out who was the aunt of one of my staff members. And so all three of those people were related to my church, but two of them were going to be in church Sunday night. This was Palm Sunday. And so I interviewed them. And, you know, the, it was interesting to talk to, talk to actually it was, the, it was the uncle of the son and the son of the grandfather. And he said, you know, Reed loved to shoot guns. He loved to hunt. It was like part of his joy was going with his grandpa and going hunting. And so, you know, so suddenly my sermon got more complex because I was, here's a guy who just lost his dad and his nephew to gun violence. And, and so then we, you know, we, what, what I did is I focused on what are the things that we could all you know, we might all agree are just common sense we got to do. Like, like giving, allowing people to carry guns in the open or, you know, carry, you know, carrying them on their person or in their car and not requiring any training in how to use a gun. How stupid is that? I mean, I, I'm standing there with my, 
you know, at the gun range, and I've got my gun, and I'm getting ready to shoot, and my finger's on the trigger, and he's, whoa, 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 put your finger out here before you, you know, as you're moving around, you're going to shoot something. I'm like, I'm a reasonably intelligent person, and I wasn't thinking about that. And so you give somebody a gun that can kill people, and you let them put it in their purse or on their body, and you don't even give them basic training. And there's a whole host of things like that. The man who, who did the straw purchase at Walmart, uh, I think his fine was $100 for buying a gun for a guy who came and shot three, three people in my congregation. That, that's just wrong. And so you know, when, when I surveyed the congregation, it, almost every gun owner agreed that's wrong. And so we began to look at, here are four things we can stand for that might make the world a safer place. In Kansas, you can buy a gun online with no background checks. You have to get a background check if you're going to a gun shop. But if you're not, you, know, you can buy a gun online, and you can buy almost anything online in your state and go pick it up, and there's no background check. So every, almost everybody says, that's just, that's just wrong. And so what we focused on is the things that we might be able to rally people around as opposed to thinking you're going to get rid of everybody's guns. That's just not going to happen. And so, you know, it's, again, trying to find that way that you influence people and not just irritate people. And even in this room, there are some of you who love, you have gun collections, and you shoot, you know, you go hunting. And so we got to find what's, what is the path that might actually accomplish something. And, you know, unfortunately, as, as all of you know, you know, President Obama and, and his election spurred the greatest gun sales in the history of our country. And gun sales are now down under President Trump. It's just this odd paradox, right? That if I'm afraid you're gonna take my guns away, I'm gonna go buy as many as I can, as, as much as I can. And if I don't think you're gonna take them away, then I'm satisfied with what I've got. It's just weird, but that's part of our, part of, and that story goes back to Cain and Abel, Cain killing his brother Abel. But. I have a question. Uh, an atheist is a child of God. What kind of conversation would you have with an atheist? And assume the atheist follows the precepts of the Bible without being religious. Yeah, sure. So, you know, at Resurrection, we're a congregation whose focus is on reaching non-religious and nominally religious people, and we tell folks, atheists are welcome here. And I have conversations with atheists on a regular, you know, regular basis. Um, I, my own convictions and my worldview are different from that. And so, but I think there are plenty of places where atheists are right in challenging things that are, that either don't make sense or are, you know, that, that, that are wrong, as held by many Christians, not all Christians. And, um, you know, several years ago, um, Richard Dawkins' book, uh, The God Delusion. So I spent an entire series working through The God Delusion. So it was Conversations with an Atheist was what the series was called. And I, uh, you know, we took like four or five of the main points that he made in the, in the book. And some of my people were upset that I was going to spend five weeks with Richard Dawkins, you know, in church. And, but I said, you know, here's a place where he's right about this. We need to recognize that. And we need to recognize, as you just said, that from a Christian perspective, atheists are children of God, right? And they're loved by God. And I'm called to love my atheist brother or sister. And I recognize that there are a lot of people who are atheists, and either from the uh, rational arguments that they've heard or that they believe that it makes the most sense to them, I totally get that. And, uh, and or from experiences they've had with Christians. And sometimes the worst case for Christianity is Christians. And the way Christians have lived their lives and the things that they've done and said that have led people to say, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of that. So, so we try to be a place. But at the same time, we're a place who has convictions, you know, just, just as you would expect at the local atheist club in Kansas City. They have a set of convictions. And, and so what we look for is what are the places where we agree, and I'm going to make the, case, the best case I can for my convictions. I'm going to expect the atheist to do the same. In the realm of discussing possibilities and thinking of gray, have you ever given a sermon that deals with the possibility of, let's say, a black god or a woman god, because it's always he. Yeah. 
So uh, it, it, it does get difficult when, when we're using our, and choosing our adjectives. So I try to be careful about how many masculine adjectives I'm using because I don't think that God is, I think God transcends gender and certainly transcends color. So when we think about people created in the image of God, that means all of us. And God doesn't look like an old white guy sitting on a throne somewhere. God is spirit. And the fact that we were created in the image of God has to do with what's in here and what's here, not what we phys- physically look like and not our gender. And it is true that so much of Scripture is shaped in a worldview. Uh, you know, the ancient Hebrew religion, as well as gone into the New Testament, it was a very patriarchal society. And, and so most of the language in Scripture used about God is masculine, but not all of it. There are places where you find uh, hints or you know, clues of a bigger picture of God than that. And, um, and so, yes, we, we have ta- I've talked about that on a number of occasions, that God is not male, or female, that God, uh, that Kurt, you know, clearly there are attributes of God that we find, attributes, not physical attributes, but that God transcends all of those categories. So yes. I have sometimes, um, and uh, again, I find, I have no good argument to tell you to say why I wouldn't do that more often, except to say that at least for some people it creates a wall and it's hard to hear after that. And I find, when I was in seminary, so I went to Southern Methodist University for seminary, and every time somebody would say he, somebody else would shout out she with reference to God during the lectures, and somebody else would shout out it. And so pretty, pretty soon it was he, she, it every time we were talking about God. And, uh, and I just, I, I found it, sometimes it gets just complicated. So gender, when it comes to human beings, we always refer to, that uh, we use inclusive language. I try to minimize the masculine pronouns, but I still use them. And Jesus, when he talked about God, referred to God in a specific way as father. And so I'm going to recognize that and at the same time recognize God is also mother. And um, so. Okay, there were uh, two atoms in creation, but one was sufficient uh, here. Uh, <laughs> I, I just want to, as we close, just want to um, thank you and say of, the, of all the things of this sort, I've been a part of at this place for 13 years. I feel as good as, about this one as any have been a thank part you. of it. Thank you very much. Adam Hamilton founded the Church of the Resurrection in Leawood, Kansas in 1990. He has written 24 books, including When Christians Get It Wrong and Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White. David Brooks has been writing columns for the New York Times since 2003. In his book, The Road to Character, he examines the internal struggles of some of the world's greatest thinkers and leaders. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Explore thousands of videos from the festival on our website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and me, and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.